Hello and welcome to Her Ambition, the podcast that supports ambitious young women to start their career right. This is a podcast that celebrates a generation of female leaders opening doors for the next. I'm your host, Josie Sequira Shuka, and each week I'll be talking with a new inspiring woman so that we, as the next generation of successful women, can learn from their mistakes, their successes, and most importantly, lay a solid foundation for our own futures. I am so excited to welcome our guest today on Her Ambition. Marianne Seacart is a journalist, author, non-executive director and broadcaster. She spent 20 years as assistant editor and columnist at The Times, and she has presented programmes on Radio 4, such as Start the Week, Profile and Analysis. She is also author of The Authority Gap, Why Women Are Still Taken Less Seriously Than Men and What We Can Do About It. This is described by both Waterstones and The Guardian as the best political book of the year, and was described by Andrew Marr as the book Marianne was born to write. Marianne, welcome to Her Ambition. Thank you. Very glad to be on. I'm really excited to have you on and get into the questions. So to start every single podcast, we ask three random questions um, just to get the ball rolling. And my very first question for you is what was your dream job when you were a child? Well, bizarrely, my dream job was I wanted to be a political columnist for The Times because I read The Times every day from really quite an early age. We used to get both The Times and The Guardian at home and I loved politics and current affairs. And I thought I want to be one of those people writing about it. And that's what I ended up doing. So I'm one of those incredibly lucky people who achieved her childhood ambition. What age were you when you thought I want to be columnist at The Times? And Probably, I guess, from about the age of 11 or 12, that's what I wanted to be. Either that or editor of the Times, which I didn't achieve. That's that's amazing. You don't actually you don't hear of that very much. Normally on a podcast, someone's like, oh, I wanted to be a firefighter, and then I turned to be a CEO. <laughs> it, it's probably a brief switch, but that's really, really interesting. Well, I think probably when I was even younger, I wanted to be prime minister. But, you know, lots of people want to be prime minister, don't they? I had that. That was my dream job when I was about five. And then I think I went to actor after that, which was a bit, bit of a U-turn. <laughs> And my second question is, what was what's the best advice that you've ever had? My dad gave me some very good advice, which was never do anything irreversible that you might later regret. And it was things like don't get a tattoo, don't accidentally get pregnant and have a baby that you don't want. Don't let someone drive you when they're drunk and end up, you know, with your face through the windscreen. And I listened to this very religiously and I never did have a tattoo until I turned 40 and I realized that I'd actually spent more of my life regretting not having a tattoo <laughs> than having one and so I went and I went along with my best friend and we both had a tattoo <laughs> and I've never regretted it <laughs> really when you were 40 yeah yeah oh that's wonderful can I ask what it is uh, it's a lily of the valley which um, is my husband's favorite flower and I also think is really lovely and both our daughters have lily as one of their middle names Oh, that's lovely. And you were supposedly old enough to make that decision then. Exactly. I did deliberately put it on the um, sort of behind my shoulder on my back. So I didn't have to look at it in the mirror unless I chose to. (laughs) That's excellent. Now I'm going to get on to the actual questions, which about you and your book. And 
the first thing I want to talk about is the act is the name of the book. It's called The Authority Gap. And we often hear about the pay gap a lot, or we hear about the scientific research gap, but I'd never heard of the authority gap before. Can you tell us why you called it that? Yeah, that, the reason you hadn't heard of it before was because I made up the phrase. <laughs> and in fact, I had researched and half written the book before I actually came up with the phrase, the authority gap. I knew what I was writing about. I just hadn't put a proper name to it. And what it does is it measures the extent to which we still take men more seriously than women. We're still more reluctant to accord authority to women than to men. And when I say authority, I mean both in terms of expertise and also in terms of power and leadership. And so we assume a man knows what he's talking about until he proves otherwise, whereas for a woman, it's all too often the other way around. So we have to prove our competence more before people believe it. And in fact, women are twice as likely as men to say that they have to provide evidence of their competence. And black women are twice as likely as white women to say that. So the further you are from the white male middle class default, the wider the authority gap becomes. Mm, and the more you have to prove. And the more you have to prove. Mm -hmm. Basically, the lower people's initial estimation of you is. You know, people underestimate women on average. And I say people, not just men, because I think women do it too. So we get underestimated. We get talked over and interrupted more than men do. Uh, our views are ignored much more than men's are. Uh, we get patronized uh, and we have our, our authority resisted. Mm -hmm. Have your authority resisted. I like that phrase. So it actually came out of researching for the book, that name and that idea. And can you remember a moment when you thought that you have to write the book? Was there a sort of click where you knew that it had to be done? There wasn't a light bulb moment. It was something that had been bothering me most of my life, certainly witnessing it happen to other women and sometimes having it happen to myself. But what actually happened was I was applying to be a visiting fellow of All Souls College, Oxford. Uh, they do these wonderful visiting fellowships where they look after you for up to a, an academic year and you just research whatever it is you're interested in. And my idea was I was going to write a book and I had all sorts of ideas for books about politics because that's what I'd spent most of my life writing about. But I also had this lurking at the back of my mind and I couldn't decide which one to put in as my research proposal. But I happened to meet uh, a fellow of All Souls who was a friend of mine anyway, before I had to apply. And I said to him, look, can I try these ideas out on you? So I gave him the political ideas. And then I said, uh, I've got this other idea. It's a bit left field. I'm not sure it's the sort of thing All Souls would be interested in, but I think it's interesting. And I told him about it. And he said, that's the one you should do. And as soon as he said it, I was really relieved. I thought, yes, that's actually the one I really want to do. You know, my head was telling me, write about politics, that's your expertise. But my heart was saying, write about this, because it's what you really care about. Mm, mm. And it's what so many women care about well. Absolutely, about. yes. Yes. And was that, was it something that you've always cared about since you were younger? Always. I mean, I've been a feminist since I was about two. <laughs> <laughs> me too, me too. Yeah. I mean, I used to be so resentful when my brother was allowed to do things and I wasn't. I, I even I wrote to the headmaster of his prep school saying, please, can I come to this school? I don't mind sharing the lose. I already play football and cricket with my brother. You know, I want to be allowed to come. And of course, they only took boys and it just seemed so unfair to me. <laughs> All through my life, I have fought um, for feminist issues. 
And uh, I helped to start an organization called Women in Journalism way back in, gosh, I think it was about 2000, um, when these issues were incredibly unfashionable and the men absolutely derided it. And of course, they called it whinge, women in journalism, (laughs) and would take the pit out of us. And we went off to our whinge meetings. So, Mm. you know, we were really fighting against the tide then. Now we're, I think we're pretty much more with the tide. Yes, I completely agree. And I love that you say that you were a feminist at like two years old. Can you remember like the first thing that you noticed when when you were little, when you were like, this doesn't seem quite as right. Why aren't I being treated like my brother or like that boy over there? Uh, I remember not being allowed to play football when I was on a summer camp because only boys were allowed to play football. And I used to play a lot of football at home with my brother. And I was absolutely furious about it. And I just argued and argued and argued and argued till eventually I was allowed to play. Um, I remember my brother being taken into the cockpit of the plane when you were allowed to do this um, by my father and him not taking me and being so angry about it because I really wanted to see what it was like inside a cockpit. So, yes, my, my childhood is suffused with these memories. Mm-hmm, which all came through and has helped you in a way write the book and notice all the authority gap that needs to be highlighted amazing now in your book you write about a fascinating study of women being exposed to different pictures can you tell us about that yeah this is so interesting because it's about speaking time now research shows that in almost every single area of public life at least men talk for longer than women do so whether it's Mm -hmm. meetings or questions and answers after a talk or in the classroom or in national parliaments men talk for longer than women do and this study took male and female students and asked them to give a speech Uh, I think they were given VR goggles so it made it feel as if they were talking to a room full of people and surreptitiously at the back of the room the researchers put either a portrait of Bill Clinton or Hillary Clinton or Angela Merkel or no painting at all. And they measured how long the students spoke for. And without the portrait, the male students talked for far longer than the female students did. Same with the Bill Clinton portrait. But when they had Hillary Clinton or Angela Merkel at the back of the room, the gender gap completely disappeared. So the young women spoke for as long as the young men and they spoke better. And it had no effect on the men at all, whatever was there. So that just shows that these subliminal images that we have around us hugely boost our confidence or indeed do the opposite if we're surrounded by images of men, which we usually are. And actually, you know, I I spent uh, a year, as I said, researching this book at an Oxford college. And in the dining hall of that college, there were about 40 portraits. Every single one was of a man. Three were were of men of colour, which was something, but not a single woman. And you think, what effect does that have on the people there, the the women there? Absolutely. And I find this so interesting because, same, at my university, in my dining hall, it's full of portraits of men. And I study chemistry. And in the chemistry building, it's lots of photos of men doing their science experiments. And when I read that, it made me wonder, how have I been affected by that? And how are all the other girls affected by that? And if we were surrounded by pictures of women as well, or it was 50-50, how would I act differently? Well, you would actually perform better, the research suggests. So there was another study um, in which girls and boys were given science tests. And in the test were 
pictures of scientists. And when they put female scientists in the pictures as well as male ones, the girls perform better in those tests. It's, it's just crazy to think about. And I didn't, I didn't realize either that the human brain so easily picked up on small cues like that for how it thought that it should behave. And that actually that can affect our own you know, work and how long we speak for. It is extraordinary, but I mean, it, it makes you think how easily you can fix a lot of these problems. I mean, it's very, mm. you know, your chemistry lab should just have some pictures of female chemists in it. And your dining hall should have some portraits of women because it will make an enormous difference. Mm. What do you think the world would look like if it was 50, 50% of men, 50% of women, or even the other way around? And... 90% of the prime ministers have been female. And if you went to uni, all the pictures are female. Do you think it would flip and then it would be men speaking for less? Yeah, yeah. I think the authority gap will completely reverse because it's all about the sort of subliminal images in our brains that turn into unconscious bias. So if we're just, if we just associate men more sort of automatically with authority, then we're going to feel uncomfortable and surprised when we see women in authority. And it's that that causes the authority gap is we just expect men to be in charge. And therefore, sociologists call it the, the incongruity theory. And it's the fact that it still feels incongruous for women to be in charge. It makes us more uncomfortable when they are. And, you know, I use the analogy in my book uh, that for my grandparents, it was really incongruous and unusual to see a woman driving a car. And now, of course, we don't think twice about it. And for my parents, it was pretty incongruous to see a woman, at least in public life, in business, say, wearing trousers. You know, they always had to wear a skirt or, or a dress. And now we don't think twice about it. If it's just as um, common to see women in power and authority as men, we won't think twice about it and we'll stop having these ridiculous reactions to them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And of course, women think twice about it as well, because we Absolutely. also experience lots of unconscious bias. Yeah, because we're all surrounded by the same messages, aren't we? You know, almost from birth, we are we read children's books and we watch children's films and TV and possibly in our own household in which basically the mother is the caregiver and the father turns up now and then, but probably has more authority over the family. And, you know, he almost certainly works more. He almost certainly earns more than the mother. And so we grow up with these role models from an incredibly early age of basically dad's in charge. Dad is more senior than mum. Men are more senior than women. This, this, is, this creates this bias, unconscious bias in our brains. And I suffer from it too. You know, I've written a whole book about it and I've been a feminist since I was two, but I've still had my brain imprinted with this pattern that men are still basically in charge. So, you know, I, I find I, I will read a newspaper story that says something like Professor Sue's University, and I'm assuming it's a man. And then I find it's Professor Cordelia Smith. And I sort of jump and think, oh, God, <laughs> I went and made that assumption again, didn't I? Yeah. Can you remember the first time you made that assumption? No, but we, we just all do it because we're used to there being yeah. more male, female professors. So, you know, our brains are so used to categorizing because it just makes life simpler not to have to work everything out from scratch. The first, you know, every, every time we have a thought that we just categorize, you know, men in positions of authority. So that's our default assumption. And then it's overturned when we find that it's actually a woman. Yes. If it, no, had been yes, nurse, yes. if it had been nurse, I would have assumed it was a woman. And I would have been just as surprised if it had been a male nurse. 
Absolutely. Yes. And that makes me think of that riddle about the doctor and the son. And I, I remember doing that riddle when I was 12. And I, I was also a massive feminist that done talks about feminism, but I thought it must be like a gay dad or I, I couldn't yeah. figure it out. And that was like me, a female, that completely shocked me. It's quite a big moment in my life, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. I got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> And in fact, um, the, the woman who told me this riddle, who, who, who does a lot of work on bias at Harvard, um, Mazarine Banerjee, she said that even people whose mothers were surgeons couldn't guess that riddle. Now, how extraordinary is that? Yeah, because they've grown up with a female surgeon in their life. Yeah, so but the message they're getting from the world around them is so much stronger. That and in fact, it, um, yeah, yeah I, I made a, a Radio 4 programme about women's unconscious bias against women. And I asked the listeners to imagine a hijacker bursting into the cockpit of a plane and attacking the pilot. And then I said, now, how are you picturing the pilot? I bet he's a white middle aged man. And a woman on Twitter, Margaret Oates, said she tweeted afterwards, driving home in uniform, listening to this programme. Yes, I pictured a white middle-aged man, despite being a female pilot. <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? She can go through life, be a pilot, do all that, do you know everything to be a pilot, and then she's still sitting in the car picturing what the world pictures. Yeah. That's so powerful. So the world has to change first, I think, before our biases mm -hmm. will change. Yes, the world has to change before our biases. I like that. And I'm really interested to know what has men that you know what has their response been like to the book well it's interesting because um whenever I talk to women about this book they all to a woman go yes it's the story of my life thank you for writing mm -hmm. this and they instantly recognize it now men divide roughly into three so there's about a third of them who are really quite open to it and they look a bit uncomfortable, but you know, they'll ask intelligent questions about the book just as you or I would about someone else's book. And they're absolutely fine, they're, they're the good guys. And then the other two thirds are men who either start mansplaining to me what the book ought to be about, <laughs> oh <my gosh. laughs> or tell me that my thesis is completely wrong and it's out of date and women are on top now and uh, basically I've got it wrong thereby both of them proving the very point of the book, which is that women's expertise gets disproportionately challenged, even by men who know less about it than they do. So, you know, I have been researching and writing this book for sort of three years or so. They know absolutely nothing. And yet they're telling me that I'm wrong. And that is the authority gap in action. So it's quite Absolutely. ironic, isn't it, that they don't seem to notice. The, the uh, irony is it's yeah. quite painful, really. Yeah, yeah. And that, that must make you cringe so much as well when you've been writing. for So how do you deal with that scenario? You must feel really angry. I do. I try and stay calm and I say, look, there is just so much evidence. Please read the book and you will see there is an enormous amount of academic research and evidence underpinning this book deliberately because yes. I knew that otherwise a lot of men would take issue with it. So if, if, if you can disprove the, th the thesis, that's fine. But your anecdote isn't going to work against my data. Yes. <laughs> you know, there was, yeah. so one former editor of mine, for instance, said, oh, no, it's completely rubbish. He said, I, I sit on all these appointment panels these days for boards and we only ever appoint women. Men haven't got a chance these days. 
So I said, well, I think you'll find that's not the case. And he said, no, no, believe me, I know about these things. (laughs) So the very next day, by chance, I had one of those monthly emails in my inbox telling me how who had been appointed to boards in the previous month. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. I'll count it. 20 men, 19 women. So it was exactly equal. But to him, men didn't have a chance at all. It was only women. So I just sent him the email and said, here you go. (laughs) (laughs) And I think... I mean, from that, the irony is that it's those two thirds of men who don't believe it that need to read the book. Absolutely. But how can we get them on our side when they seem so resistant? Well, we really need the first third of men to be our allies and to call Mm -hmm. out the rest of men. I mean, that's what we really need to do. Actually, I would say probably we've got about a third of men who who, who, who already converted, as it were, who understand the problem and want to do something about it. And then there's about a third of men who are complete dinosaurs who will never read the book and won't even listen uh, to, to these sorts of arguments. They're probably about a third in the middle who are open to conversion. They're not necessarily um, deeply antagonistic to the idea of more gender equality, but they're probably quite unaware and don't think about their biases, don't notice them. Um, and I think that if the, the good third, the real allies, could start working on the middle third, mm-hmm. then we would end up with the dinosaurs being marginalised. Yes. So the dinosaurs are going to remain dinosaurs, but once they become quite a small minority, it becomes quite embarrassing for them. Uh, so I, I think it's a bit like racism 10 or 20 years ago. So, you know, in a group of completely white people, you would often find a racist person feeling that they could give, you know, they they could say a racist joke and get away with it. They can't do that anymore because everyone else would turn on them and say, that is not acceptable, you know, stop it. 10 or 20 years ago, people would have been too embarrassed to say anything and they might have laughed along weakly. And I think once it becomes that unacceptable for men to be sexist in the company of other men, that's when things are going to change. So we really need other men to call it out. I mean, I can call it out, you know, for as long as I like, but, you know, a lot of men are just going to stick their fingers in their ears and go, la, 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 la. It's only when other men start saying it that they realise they might have to change. Yes. And are you hopeful that that, that it's going to change? Yeah, I am, slowly. I just want to speed it up. (laughs) Uh, I think it is already changing. I mean, I think it's a lot better now than it was 10 years ago. I think Me Too has made an enormous difference. But it's slow, and I think we could definitely speed it up. Yes, because you talk about Me Too there, and I'm part of that generation that grew up watching Me Too happen. I've had my grandmother and my mum saying how much better it is to be a woman now. But I think a lot of people my age still experience sexism, and they're noticing the authority gap still. What would would you want to say to those women? I would say as calmly and politely as you can call it out and try and recruit male allies to call it out too so the authority gap consists of lots of little pieces of bad behavior microaggressions you might call them which at the time are very annoying but they're not sort of you know career ending but they accumulate like compound interest they sort of roll up over the course of a life to create this huge gap between men and women in terms of opportunity and achievement so what you need to do is call them out as they happen or even better recruit an ally to call them out so suppose you say something at a meeting uh, you know you're in mid-flow and a man just talks over you or interrupts you 
you could say, oh, hang on a minute, I haven't finished yet. Uh, and that is a risky thing to say um, because he might think, oh, God, she's tricky or difficult or spiky or something like that. But if I were to say, oh, hang on a minute, I was really interested in what Josie was saying there. Mm -hmm. That is really helpful to you. Or indeed, if you make a point at a meeting and no one takes a blind bit of notice and 10 minutes later, a guy makes the same point and everyone praises him for his brilliance, then I can say, oh, I'm so glad you agree with what Josie said earlier. (laughs) (laughs) So recruiting allies is really helpful. You can do it yourself, but there is always a danger that you will start to look like um, I don't know, you're, you're being sort of paranoid mm. or chippy or oversensitive, all the horrible words that men will use about women who stand up for themselves. Yes. And then you're standing on your own. But with allies, as you said, they can help you. And it becomes more shameful, doesn't it? When a group yeah. of people are saying, no, you can't say this. You're just copying Marianne's point. Or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, ideally, whoever's running the meeting, I'm talking mainly about work in this book, but of course it will be the same in a group of friends, but it's more important at work, isn't it? Um, I mean, ideally, the person chairing the meeting would call out the man doing it and say, oh, no, we're not having any interruptions in this meeting. I want to hear what Josie said, or indeed make the point that you made it earlier if, um, you know, if, if your views have been ignored. Yes, yes. Excellent. And of course, this podcast is called Her Ambition. And a lot of the time when women are ambitious, they try to be put down by men or they feel that men are putting down or not or treating them as overly ambitious. Um, What would you like to change regarding to that? I just think it's ridiculous. There are so many double standards between women and men. So, you know, a man is assertive, a woman is aggressive or bossy or overbearing. You know, you've heard all these, haven't you? Mm-hmm. A man is ambitious and you think, well, of course he's ambitious. You know, he wants to do well in his career. There's absolutely nothing wrong about that. If a woman is ambitious, it has derogatory connotations. She's somehow pushy or she's self-promoting. Both words that, again, are very rarely used in men and are also acceptable in men. Men are expected to self-promote. They're expected to tell people how great they are in order to you know, get a job or, or, or to win a promotion. If women do it, we recoil. And it's the same with ambition. So uh, one of the women I interviewed for this book is uh, called Elaine Chow, and she was transportation secretary in the last American administration. And she was described by the New York Times of all papers, a liberal newspaper. She was described as unapologetically ambitious. And I thought, what has she got to apologize for? She's a mm. she's a politician. She's a cabinet minister. Of course, she's ambitious. You don't become a cabinet minister without being ambitious. Why should she have to apologize for that? Uh, someone once wrote in a profile of me that the word ambitious is so often used to describe Marianne Seacart that her children probably think it's one of her middle names. Uh, again, I was always described as the ambitious Marianne Seacart. And yet all my journalistic colleagues were ambitious. Of course they were. I mean, it's an incredibly competitive profession writing for a national newspaper. It's just taken for granted you're going to be ambitious. But it's only mentioned when it's a woman. Yes. And it's somehow unique when it's a woman as well. Yeah. And it's but but it also it's sort of something that we should be embarrassed about. You know, we shouldn't yeah. be ambitious. And why shouldn't we be ambitious? Why shouldn't we be allowed to succeed or at least want to succeed? Mm. It's completely crazy. Yes. Do you think is that, is that a way of dimming it down? Do you think because it's slightly threatening to men that there are lots yeah. of ambitious women around? Yeah, I think so. It's a way of keeping us in our place. 
You know, if you're not allowed to be ambitious, if you're not allowed to be self-promoting, if you're not allowed to be pushy, you're not going to get anywhere, are you? <laughs> Particularly if men are allowed to be all those things. There's mm. a way of keeping us down. Keeping us down, yes. And again, it's the way to get through that by calling it out and by having those male allies who are saying, why are you calling her ambitious and not him? Yes, it's also um, the other sort of male ally you really want in work in your career is a mentor or ideally even a sponsor. And again, mm. probably a man. So if you've got a, a more senior man saying to his male colleagues, Josie's really good and I think we should be promoting her, that's the best way for you to get promoted, sadly, because as my book shows, they're more likely to listen to other men than they are to women. So you might think, oh, I need a female mentor because she'll give me advice on how to succeed in a man's world. She might, but her voice won't be as influential with other senior colleagues as his will, mm. sadly. Yes. Yeah, they got shouldn't be like that, but that's the way the world is. But that's the way it is at the moment, and we have mm. to push through that to change things. Yes, Amazing. Exactly. I mean, Excellent. I was really lucky to have a uh, a male sponsor very early in my career, um, who was Bill Deeds. He was editor of the Telegraph, and he was always suggesting me to other people in newspapers, you know, and and, and telling them that I was great. And it was hugely helpful. Mm. I'm so grateful to him. Is that why you say? I know you say in the book that often actually women aren't necessarily the best mentors for other women. Yes. I mean, I think women are good mentors for giving advice, but they're not necessarily the best sponsors. So there's a slight difference. So being a, men a mentor, you'll mm -hmm. just sort of give advice to your mentee, but a sponsor, you'll really try to help them get on. Um, and, and I think it's better to have a male sponsor if you can. But a, a very different answer to your question about what to do um, when you are sort of accused of being pushy or self-promoting and that sort of thing is, I think as women, and again, this is very much a sort of transitional tactic. It's not what I would like to have to recommend, but given the way the world is, it's what I do recommend. We have to temper our authority or our self-promotion or our confidence with warmth in order to mm. be accepted. Because what tends to happen otherwise is if we start to behave as confidently or, and as assertively as men, people will recoil and they'll feel uncomfortable, again, because we're going against stereotype, because it's incongruous. And they will start to call us horrible words like bitchy, bossy, aggressive, overbearing, stern, scary, ball breaking. You know, all these words that are never used of a man doing exactly the same thing. But if we don't behave as confidently and as assertively as men, we'll just get rolled over. So... We, we, we have this awful sort of double bind, you know, either we're not confident enough and we're disrespected or we are confident enough and we're disliked. And the trouble is that likability is a much more important factor for women than it is for men when it comes to hiring and promotion decisions, particularly if it's men doing the hiring and promotion. So how do we get through this? What we have to do is add this layer of warmth to our personality. This is what all the research studies show and also what all the women I interviewed for the book said, and I interviewed a lot of very, very powerful and authoritative women, you know, presidents and prime ministers and CEOs and bishops and generals and film directors. And what they all said was that they tried to convey warm authority. And that meant that they used, they smiled more, they used humor, uh, they tried to get to know the people around them in a sort of personal way, have lunch with them, you know, become sort of friends with them in order for their authority to be accepted and not resisted. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's an it, it's an added burden that men don't have to bear because men men can just be tough and be respected. If women are tough, they're bitchy. 
So yes. it's going to be, if we're going to have an inner steel, we also have to have an outer carapace of warmth in order to be accepted. Yes. And it's another, it feels like another eggshell that has to be tiptoed around. Exactly. Exactly. You know, we have to read the room so carefully. We have to be much more emotionally intelligent. Mm. Uh, we have to be careful not to tread on any male egos. So <laughs> it's exhausting. There's a lot to figure out. Yeah. yeah I think yeah. I'm getting to that. I'm getting to that age as well when I'm realizing just how many things there are to tiptoe around and people to manage. So in every podcast episode, there are two questions that we ask every single guest. And my first one of these for you is what is your biggest achievement? Do you know, actually writing a book, because I had signed two contracts in the course of my life to write different books before this one and never managed to get them written. <laughs> I, did in, I did in mitigation have children and a full-time job but nonetheless I didn't write those books mm -hmm. and you know I'd got to my late 50s and I thought I'm never going to write a book it had become a family joke that I was never going to write a book and I finally did and you did and it was the book that you were born to write as well well according to Angie Ma yes. yeah. <laughs> I love that I love that as a quote as well yeah amazing so that was your biggest achievement actually writing the book and getting it together and such an important one as well and my second, my last question for you is what are your top tips to young women who are just about to enter the world of work? I think what's the most important thing for young women to understand is that when they come across this sort of sexism, it's not, they shouldn't take it personally. They should understand that it's the system that is against them because so often we beat ourselves up. You know, suppose for instance, we make a point at a meeting and no one takes any notice. And 10 minutes later, a man makes exactly the same point and it's treated like the second coming, you know, and we tend to beat ourselves up and we think, oh, I, you know, I'm, perhaps I wasn't confident enough or I wasn't articulate enough or I wasn't eloquent enough. No, you were just too female. Okay. It wasn't your fault. It was simply the fact that you're a woman. And I think once we start to understand that as women, our confidence actually builds because we realize that it's not people taking against us personally. It's the system treating us differently because we're female. Mm. I really like that. Yes. So it's not actually, it's not their fault. It's the system that is against them. And that yeah. is therefore the thing that they need to fight and yes. get other people to help them fight as well. Yes. So it's not a question of self-improvement for women. So often we're told, what can women do? What can women do? It's not women we need to fix. It's how we <laughs> You know, it's how we all perceive and react to and interact with women that we need to fix. That's what my book is saying. It's not Absolutely. women that are the problem. Yeah, so women are already great. It's yeah. the system that needs work. Yeah. Just be comfortable in your skin and confident about your abilities. So actually look objectively at what you've achieved and then imagine yourself as your best friend and think, what would you say to your best friend if she had achieved those things? you would tell her how great she was. So tell yourself how great you are. Tell yourself how great you are and be comfortable in your ability and in your own skin. Yeah. I love all of those, especially because I think at this age and being, you know, 18, 19 sort of age, you start to, it almost feels, I thought, a little bit like a second puberty. And you, again, start to sort of doubt yourself and how you're going to be compared to everyone else who's about to enter the job market and go to uni. So it feels... A very important message, I think, to tell young people that they need to be comfortable in their own skin and in their ability. 
Marianne, thank you so much for coming on Her Ambition. It was a pleasure to have you on. And I just found this such an interesting and important conversation as well. Good. Well, it's been great. It's been a delight. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Her Ambition with Josie Sequira Shuka. I would really appreciate if you could rate, review and subscribe so that more young women can find out about us. Find all our episode and social media details in the show notes below.